Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, today we have the great uh, privilege of continuing on with the sermon series we've been in for a while. If you're a guest with us, uh, let me explain where we are. We're calling this The Way, um, which is not all that original, but here we are anyway. And then what we're doing is, Dwayne puts a map up on the screen for you, is we're basically tracing a journey that Jesus took. Jesus took this walking journey, if you follow the red line, from uh, the area around the Sea of Galilee down through uh, the Samaritan lands, Samaria, until he got to Jerusalem where he was eventually crucified. And these are three, five, maybe a couple more days than that, but probably more like five days walk that Jesus and his disciples uh, trace that red line on his way to his ultimate destiny and purpose. And so um, the reason we started in this is he has to walk through Samaria, like I said, and that's hostile territory. Those are the enemies of the Jews. So as he walks through Samaria, he teaches us, potentially, if we're paying attention, how we might walk through hostile territory of our own. And so we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It says this, He, being Jesus, told his next story, a parable, to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and who looked down their noses at the common people. Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a taxman. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week and I tithe on all my income. Meanwhile, Jesus says, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give me mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. Jesus then commented, this tax man, not the other, went home, made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you'll become more than yourself. What's interesting about this in one sense is this is the only parable Jesus tells of all the parables he tells through all of Scripture that takes place in a house of worship. And I don't know exactly why that's significant, but it feels significant to me. Of all the different parables and farms and out roads and all the different places. This one takes place, we could say, in church. It's a holy man and the reviled tax man. Let me see if I can make sense of what the tax man really meant. This is not some nice guy from H&R Block that we're like, well, you know. The tax man in, the tax collector in the Jewish time in the Roman occupation was the most reviled place to be, is the most reviled person. What this is, is a Jewish person who collects tax from his fellow Jews in order to give the money to the Roman oppressive occupation so that they might continue to oppress and occupy. On top of that, not only is that what's happening, but part of the money is a temple tax, and it's not for the temple that the Jews would pray in that we see the the parable take place in here. It's for the temple of Jupiter, so a different God. So not only am I taking your money and giving it to the occupier, I'm taking the money that you would intend for your God, and I'm taking that to give towards ours. This is as if tomorrow we got invaded. As Ohio, we get invaded by Michigan. (sighs) 
amazing. What would happen? And they run us over and they take over everything. And now we're all Southern Michigan. We're just Southern Michigan. We're not even Ohio. They take away our identity. They say, you're nobody anymore. And on top of that, I knock at your door the next day after you're all having to paint your houses maize and blue and it's a whole thing. And I walk up to your door and I knock really nicely and you go, oh, the pastor's here. Maybe he has some words of comfort. And I say, I'm going to need like 30% of your income for the year because I got to take this up to Lansing because we're going to need to occupy you a little longer. How popular would I be? Not so much. This is what's happening in the day when the Jewish person is among his people taking money to give to the Romans, and he was well compensated. So then there was a double resentment. So not only is he taking from us, but the tax collector was really well off. Michigan would pay me handsomely to take your money and give it back to Michigan. This is money to oppress Jews. It's not only greedy, but that temple thing makes it kind of gross. So these are the two guys that Jesus talks about showing up to church the Pharisee, the rule follower, the religious guy, and the tax collector. And they both pray, and Jesus has something to say about what they pray and how they pray, but first, let's do something completely different. Not so long ago, I was in Levis Commons up in Perrysburg, shopping center, moderately upscale. It's nice. Landscaping's nice. Some some fancy finishes around. It's nice. Nice restaurants, nice shops, nice, nice parking lots. I noticed something very nice. I have a sample picture. Dwayne, put that up there. Fancy, fancy brick crosswalks. That tells you you're in a shopping center that's pretty nice. When they take the time to put the fancy brick sidewalks in, it's nice. And I noticed that Levis Commons has these fancy brick sidewalks, and I was very impressed by all of the fanciness happening around me until, gasp, you're not going to believe this. I looked a little closer. Walking across one of these sidewalks, you look a little closer, and you see where the cars drive over, over, and over again, and you notice something is amiss with the sidewalks, with these crosswalks, with this brick pattern. Something is amiss. You can imagine me as cars are waiting to get to their moderately upscale shopping experience as I sit on my hands and knees staring at the ground, and I notice that it's just stamped and painted asphalt. (gasps) It's fake. There are no brick crosswalks. They're tricking us. They want you to think that it's nice. It's not nice. It's just asphalt. And they come in with this giant thing. Go to the next slide, Dwayne. This is what it looks. This is what it looks like. These geniuses are just painting things and tricking us. They have this giant metal thing that when the asphalt is hot, it, it like stamps down and they put pressure on it and then they pull it up and it leaves these marks. And then another guy comes with his crew and they hold up some sort of plywood and they just paint it like we're doofuses. And we're like, man, this place is nice. Yeah, I'll pay $48 for that sweater. That's great. It looks like it's worth 12, but you do have brick sidewalks. I'll get it. Okay. And this is what happens. It's fake. It's all fake. It's faux fancy. Every place you see where tires are going over it often enough, where you see that wear happening, you get on your hands and knees. You can do this. I've done it. It's just asphalt. This is a problem. This bothers me. This really bothers me. I know it has merit. I know it's cheaper. I know it lasts longer. Bricks are hard to maintain. The whole thing snows, scrapes. It doesn't matter. They're lying to us. They're faking it. Why do you care, you ask? What is your problem? This guy's a little neurotic. I think we're leaving. Pretend like you're going to get a donut. No one will know right now. Why do I care? I'm upset with this for metaphorical reasons. These bricks are hypocrisy. These bricks are hypocrisy. This is hypocrisy in our faces laughing at us. Like they're telling us they're one thing, 
They're not that thing. They're another thing. They're saying, we're bricks, and you get close, and you're like, you're not bricks, though. You're not that at all. Eugene Peterson defines hypocrisy this way. He says, hypocrisy is form without content. Form without content. Looks like brick. That's the form. Not brick. No content. It's pretending to be something that they're not. And that bothers me on some subatomic level deep in my soul. Because I think hypocrisy, if I redefine it, I would say it's just a sophisticated way that you and I would put our guards up. That's all hypocrisy is. A, a hypocrite is just somebody with their guards up, somebody who doesn't want people to see the real them. We make it into something big and, and, and sophisticated, and it's all, oh, it's, you say this, but you do, it, it just means I don't want you to see the real me. That's all that means. And it's actually what people revile about me, the church, you, the church. Every year there's polls that come out, different people do polls about religion in America. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? How much do you believe it? All the numbers come out, 60% say this and 20% say that. And one of the things they do is say, if you don't believe in something, if you don't go to church, if you're not a Christian, why? Why? What's holding you back? And every single time one of these polls comes out, right near the top of the list is always hypocrisy. They're a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to be associated with them. They're hypocrites. They try to look good on the outside, the same as me. I know deep down, I, they're the same as me. They think they're bricks, they're just asphalt with some paint. And then their suspicions are confirmed, aren't they? With every story of a pastor's prominent failing, or the scandal of a denomination, or other prominent believers who, turns out they weren't all that different. As soon as you and I get past our defensiveness, where we go, wait, but I'm not a hypocrite. As soon as we get past that defensiveness and we get honest with ourselves, we can admit that we sometimes feel it too. But hypocrisy is what troubles us in our own souls. Hypocrisy is something that you and I feel in our bones, and we know it when we feel it, and we're not always good at figuring out why we feel it, but it's there. It's why social media so often feels gross to you. It's why social media feels slightly off-putting that there's something in it that feels like posing. It feels like, I don't think that's how that works. I think they posed for that picture. When you see that perfect family photo show up, that perfect family shot, everybody has had the experience. We got a couple of photographers in the room that do this as part of their living. And they know what happens before the shutter starts clicking Mom's yelling at dad, and dad's yelling at the kid, and the kid's picking their nose, and one's off in the woods, and it's all over. And then when they go, okay, everybody ready? Mom or dad goes, shut up and look happy. <laughs> and then it goes out on social media because they get the best shots. These people are professionals. And the best one gets out on social media, and everybody has this suspicion that that's not quite how that went. That's not how that, I know that family, that's not how that, they're not that happy. We're not, so they can't be. I think something's wrong there. I bet they're not that, I bet they're not that happy. I, I think maybe they're, they're, maybe they're not that happy. Do you think she had work done? I think, I don't know. Did they retouch that? That's Photoshop. That's not her. Did you hear what happened to that kid at school? I heard. No, the principal told my friend who told me. Yeah, <laughs> drama at that family. They're not that happy. That's not even their dog. I heard they rented it. That's not even their dog. It's just some other dog. It's just a dog they found. They don't have, they couldn't keep a dog. They can't even keep kids. Have you seen their kids? 
And you just go, and you're like, you, you, there's this base suspicion in everything we see that's perfect and beautiful. Why? Because we know. Because we've all had the family photo that when we stand up to take it, somebody's off in the woods and somebody's picking their nose and everybody's saying, shut up and look happy, and you just try your best. And everybody knows in your own home it's not perfect, and so there's no way that that reveals honesty to me. That feels fake. Feels like they're standing on some asphalt and calling it brick, because that doesn't look like them. So much of our lives, my life, your life, is just stamped fake righteousness. It's fake religiosity covering up our brokenness. It's please don't see what's really in there. We struggle with sin and darkness. We battle against addiction and abuses. We trial through traumas. We work through old things that we brought up again and again. We all have habits we wish we didn't. We all have things that if they went out on the news, that they showed up on the internet, that we would be pretty ashamed that people knew that about us. We are broken in so many ways, and yet culturally there is this expectation that we show up looking happy, maybe even holy. The Pharisee in the story that Jesus tells is stamped asphalt, pretending to be brick. And what Jesus is saying is that they are made from the same material, that they're not fundamentally different. That one may look a certain way, dress a certain way, pray a certain way, but they are the same material at the end of the day. That you and I are the same material as the person outside of this, the walls of this church who's going, I don't know if I trust those people. God is saying they are made from the same material, the same creation. And you share more than you don't. The Pharisee is trying to look different only by comparison. So what's happening in this story that Jesus tells? What are we supposed to learn? What is the danger that he's trying to warn us of? The danger is this. The Pharisee at some point stopped relating to God and started relating to others. Meaning relative to others, I'm doing all right. It wasn't about his position with God anymore. It was about his position in relation to those around him. So he goes to worship in the house of the Lord, but notice what his prayer is all about. It's just about him in comparison to everybody around him. Robbers and crooks and that darn tax collector. The Pharisee's prayer isn't honesty between him and God. It's comparison between him and others. The tax man, by contrast, is sniveling in the corner. He shows up and deals with God directly and honestly. The Pharisee says, relative to those people. To which I would say, we are those people. And until we can find ourselves in, the, in our heart of hearts, we are those people. We are the scoundrels and the sinners and the lost and the broken. And, and through God's grace, we've been called saints and brought in and made whole. And there's beauty there. But we have to first identify ourselves rightly before the Lord, that we aren't this cleaned up version of ourselves. We are exactly who we saved. At least I'm not. Or at least I don't. We've all said that. You know what? Well, at least I didn't. At least you don't. At least we don't. At least they don't. Comparison language. Comparison language is always ugly. It doesn't feel it at the time, but it's always ugly. Compared to someone in the Horn of Africa, in Somalia, Ethiopia, compared to someone in, in Somalia, I am huge. It's like I work out every day. I'm swollen. I'm huge. 
compared to the average person my age in Somalia. Now, compared to the average person in this room, some of you are thinking you might want to buy me weights or at least introduce me to the concept because I'm not a lot going on here. But compared to Somalia, at least I'm not those people, I'm huge. I can lift this cup off the table, no effort whatsoever. They'd go, ooh, you go, oh. Compared to people in Venezuela, the average 40-year-old Venezuelan man, I am so rich. My pastor's salary puts me in the top 1% of Venezuelans. I am the Jeff Bezos of Venezuela. <laughs> Alexa, bring me more toilet paper. It works. They look, they can't afford toilet paper. It's $18,000 because of inflation and bad governance and a thousand different things. If I was in Venezuela, I would be the richest man alive. When we were missionaries, a couple of years in South Africa, we spent a lot of time, a lot of time in maximum security prisons. It's part of the ministry of the church we were serving. They spent a ton of time and effort ministering to, discipling via the mail, maximum security prisoners. People in for life, the church says, let's give them life. And so every day, people would hand check little books that were printed on newsprint paper because it was thinner and cheaper. And ministries from all over the world would send their pennies in so they could print more books and post them into the prisons. And then we got to go and minister to the people directly. Some rough people in a maximum security South African prison. I was talking to my daughter about this recently, and she goes, well, how did that, you know, like, what, what do you mean you went into the prisons? I was like, no, you go in. It's kind of, we weren't scared. or too young to be scared, maybe. I don't know. But when the gate closes behind you, when that bar closes behind you, when the iron slams behind you, you should be a little more worried than you are. Because we just go in, and, and they, they put us in the yard. You know, the yard with the shivs, and I don't know what they do there. But that's, that's where we are. We're just hanging out in the yard. And my, my child is like, I thought when you said prison ministry, you were on one side of the bars and they were on the other. And I was like, you would think that, but no, we didn't do that. And there's something symbolic about the fact that they open the gates and we go in too, which is my way of saying when I show up to meet them, I am not different than you. There was one guy that we got to baptize one year. Said this story before. I've told you this before. He had a, a tattoo of a handgun right here on his chest. And above that on his neck, it said, Mr. Crime. I mean, even if just to get the tattoo, I'm impressed, much less what it must have represented. And he's getting baptized, and I'm looking at Mr. Crime, and I said, we are the same. But for a chick of geography and circumstances, but for the, the sleight of hand of he was born there and I was born here, that he was born in squalor and I was born in wealth, that he was born in a place where education was hard to come by and, and racism was rampant, and I was born in my privilege in Texas, in the safety of the suburbs, the choices I made, the bad choices I made didn't result in what his did, but we made the same amount of bad choices. And yet he's the one being baptized with Mr. Crime on his chest. And I had to realize in that moment, we are not different. God sees us for who we are, and he judges us based on our hearts, not our circumstances, not the outer appearance and so Jesus says, the tax man went home right with God. Think about this. The tax man went home right with God, the oppressor of his own people, taking their money and giving it to the oppressive government, taking their temple tax and giving it towards another God. He went home right. And the Pharisee who knew his scripture inside and out, who kept the rules, who followed the customs, he didn't. See, the tax man deals honestly with God, even though he's despicable. 
and the Pharisee was despicable in his dishonesty. We just flipped it around in our culture. We think it, to look good on the outside is what matters, and Jesus said it's the entire opposite. God wants your authenticity. He wants your honest self, and, and here's the thing. We don't start out as hypocrites. We start out earnestly seeking this God of the universe, but something about being a Christian long-term, something about, about being in God's presence and with God's people, it happens slowly. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, virtually no one goes to church to pray with the intention of not dealing with God, at least early on. But when we find that we can so effortlessly get all the social benefits of being associated with God without having to deal with God, it's hardly remarkable that form without content, hypocrisy, is so prevalent in places of prayer. That when you can get all the benefits of being in the country club but not pay the dues, why wouldn't you? Peterson is saying that Jesus' point here is that so many of us attempt to come rightly to God, and as the days go by, we find ourselves just acting as if we cared because we get all the same benefits from the culture. We get all the same societal righteousness added to us. We get all the same family values, points that we wanted, and we don't actually have to do anything. We don't have to deal with God. We don't have to confess our sins. We don't have to, we don't have to be honest. And we get all the same benefits. We want the benefits of God without the honest dealing. We want the credit of high-end brickwork without the cost. Here's what it requires for us to change this. We have to stop comparing. We have to stop comparing. We can no longer use words like at least I don't or at least I wasn't. We can no longer look at somebody with less or in a worse position or made bad life decisions and say I am fundamentally a different sort than them. You would say I am of the same material and but for the grace of God are we in the same position. We have to deal honestly with those around us and deal honestly with God. We have to recognize that we are all made of the same material and that circumstance and geography and wealth play an enormous role in who we become. Only then can we put our guards down. Can we admit that we are also broken, that we are also traumatized, that we are also in trials, that we also have sin? Only then do we put our guards down. We begin to deal honestly with God. We, we show God our authentic selves as if He couldn't see it anyway. So first, God desires your authenticity. Second, God wants simplicity. We keep reading in verse 15, Jesus is ministering and says, people brought babies to Jesus, hoping He might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they shooed him off. Jesus called them back. Let these children alone. Don't get between them and me. These children are the kingdom's pride and joy. And then Jesus says, mark this, which means listen up. Unless you accept God's kingdom in the simplicity of a child, you'll never get in. Unless you accept the kingdom with the simplicity of a child, that seems heavy, and that seems like a big statement, and that seems like something we shouldn't lose, but it also sounds kind of vague. So let me use the good folks at the Walt Disney Corporation to explain this. Who's been to Disney World? Show of hands, who has been to Disney World? Yeah, we got some Disney World people in the house. Who's been more than once? I see you, Dan. I see you. Who, has, who, who hasn't been to Disney World but wants to go to Disney World? Yeah, okay. Parents, are you watching this? Grandparents, take note. Who wants to go again because it was that much fun? Yeah. I mean, hello. Disney World is incredible. It's based, the whole model 
is based on creating wonder and joy in children. That's the whole point. For the childlike hearts among us, for those who are uh, sweet enough to experience it, some adults are like, no, no, I get that too. That's me. I'm in. But it's based in the idea that it creates wonder and joy and awe in children. And it works because children are the focus that things happen at a child's eye level. And parents will foot the bill because of what they see happening in the children. Parents go because their children are wowed, because their hearts are open to love and to hope and to magic. Parents, though they don't like to admit it, are often wondering different things in these magical moments. A picture of my family at Disney World. My children are happy to meet Goofy at some brunch somewhere. My face is saying, I wonder what kind of person makes the life choice to spend eight hours a day in this costume. There's no magic and wonder on my face. They have magic and wonder. Kids come at Disney World simply, don't they? Because it's incredible. It's amazing. Everything's clean. Everything works. The parade comes when the parade's supposed to come. Jesus is asking us to come at the kingdom of heaven the way that a child comes at the kingdom of Disney. Drop the pretense. Drop your layers of status and self-importance. Here's the thing. We misread this Jesus piece of the gospel. We misread the Jesus and children thing that he tries to say, listen, you have to be like children. We go, oh, like, what, what do you think he means by that? Children are smart, so he doesn't mean you need to be dumb. Children are smart. Children are discerning, often much more than adults. Like they can smell goodness coming down the street. So Jesus isn't saying to be obtuse. Children are still imperfect, so he's not saying you have to be perfect and, and perfectly innocent. They're simple. In the most beautiful of ways, the world that we live in prizes sophistication. Jesus prizes simplicity. So we have to stop trying to understand it and enjoy it. We have to find the joy in moments that God brings us in the kingdom and stop wondering what's behind them. So you see my child with Belle. Let's do the close-up, Dwayne. That's not a cynical face. That's not somebody wondering why Disney's stock is still up even though the price-to-earnings ratio post-pandemic is much... Oh, no, no. They're not worried about it. That's not somebody who cares about the bus schedule or the hotel accommodations or who's paying for the bill. That is the face of somebody in the midst of awe and wonder. They've come at this simply. The only question going through that brain is, how do you think I got this close to Bell? So the magic kingdom informs us of the kingdom of heaven. Simplicity, as Jesus puts it, is showing up with our defenses down. Simplicity is showing up with our defenses down. It's holy surrender. Because when our cynicism gets put away, hearts open. Like children, we can walk through the kingdom of heaven. We can walk through the world God has created for us and go, yes, more of this, please. And instead of seeing cynical things around every corner, we begin like children in the magic kingdom to see hope and magic around every corner. We see the next ride, the next moment, the next joy, the next smile. We see these things when we see with the simplicity of childlike eyes in the kingdom. 
And then we get to look at the Lord and say, I'm ready for more, Lord. Yes, Lord. Please, Lord. Think about this. Kids can't get jobs. They don't pay mortgages. They don't manage employees. They're not trying to solve the world's problems. As a result, where do they turn when their needs need to be met? Turn to you. I don't know if I've ever met a child who's asked about how a mortgage works. I don't think they care. How much do we pay? What percentage of that is interest, Dad? Explain escrow again. Oh, that's interesting. They hold it. You don't get to invest it. They, oh, okay. Kids don't care. They don't care how mortgages work. They don't care what your interest rate is. They don't care. What they care is that there's a roof over their head and they're in the house of the father. They're in the house of the mother. They're in the house with the one who loves them, cares for them, provides for them. They don't care about the rest. That's what Jesus is inviting us into in the kingdom of heaven, in his house. What would it look like to stop caring how and start paying attention to who? Childlike hearts turn to God for all their needs. And Jesus says, this is the heart you have to have to find me. The kind of heart that goes, I'm here, God. Wow me, God. Show me, God. Care for me. Hold me. Speak to me. Be with me. Provide for me. Love me. God, I'm here. Cynical adult hearts don't beat faster when we see Bell around the corner. Check our watch. Because our fast pass is only good for so long. Cynical adult hearts don't naturally show up unguarded with God because the world has taught us to put up a defense, to show our best selves, to present what people will accept. So you and I, when we look at this story, we are the Pharisees. And comparison and performance are why you and I sometimes wonder why our faith feels empty. You ever wonder, you ever, you ever get that feeling, my faith feels kind of fake today? I just, I'm kind of just going through the motions today. Most people have been there. We feel that way when we are presenting form without content. I'm praying because I'm supposed to, but my heart's not in it. I'm at church because I think I'm supposed to because my neighbors might see me, but not because I want to interact with God. Hypocrisy of stamped lives pretending to be brick. And this is where authenticity and simplicity collide. This is the beautiful place in the story that Jesus tells where authenticity and simplicity collide. Because if we can find a place where our defenses are down, where our guard is down, when we recognize and realize and admit that God knows who we are and God knows us in our deepest parts no matter what, that God knows your heart and He knows you at the core of your being, whether you're willing to show it to Him or not, He knows when we get to that place, we can put our defenses down, we can put our guard down and show up. Like a kid in a different sort of kingdom, we just show up and say, God, what do you have today? And then we find ourselves in his presence, honest and frankly feeling a little bit small, which is good for your soul. That's where the authentic you and the simple you is found. And I have news for you, that is enough for him. If you are in here wondering when you are enough for God, the answer is you already are. You already were. You have been from the beginning. He created you because he wants to know you because he loves you. And so you putting on a new 
outfit, you putting on a new habit, you trying to figure out a few more problems, you getting a few more things in your life right so you can come to God and be worthy is a joke because you are already worthy. You are enough the same way that your child, your grandchild, that a child comes to a parent with their scribbles on a page and the parent goes, it's beautiful. You're enough. But he wants you authentically and simply. And if you can find authenticity and simplicity along your life, along your walk, along the way, that is where we find our greatest path to wonder and to joy and to the life that he offers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer for our community today is one of confession. God, I pray that you would uh, convict us in that gentle way you do of the places in our lives, of the places in our faith where we are still pretending, where we're attempting to be what you want us to be or attempting to be what others might see. Father, my prayer is that as you chisel away at our hearts in those areas, as you, as you chip away the false and the pretense that the result would instead be that we would be authentically and simply yours. God, that we would see ourselves as children in your midst, that we would have awe and wonder, that we would be waiting for your next surprise around the corner. Father, remove the cynicism that coats our hearts, the scales that cover our eyes for who you really are. Remind us, God, that you want us the way we are that you saved us the way we are, that you died for us the way we are, and that our transformation starts when we find you right here in this spot. So, Father, we open our lives to you. We open our hearts to you. We confess to you we need you. We are your children. We love you. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.